to After Alexander, Episode 11, Ipsus Part 1, A Showdown Beckons. So, for the fourth time, it's off to war we go. I promise that we will eventually get to some variation on this theme, if nothing else because we will have to contend with different players sooner or later, but for now, we're going to go through the motions of a war between the successors again. This episode is going to be a description of everything leading up to and including Ipsus, while next episode will focus on the impact of the battle. As I said last time, the war broke out in 307 BCE, shortly before everyone took on a royal title, when Antigonus decided that he needed to flex his muscles in the Aegean once again. After all, Ptolemy had been meddling with the Nesiotic League, and it would have been time to prove that this sort of thing couldn't stand, surely. Demetrius was sent into Greece, bringing the League back under Antigonus' control before landing at Athens, where he was greeted as a liberator. Cassander's men were expelled from the city, along with the governor he'd placed in control of Athens, and the famous democracy of the Athenians was put back into place. This was a double blow for Cassander, as the Athenians began to rebuild their navy, which had once beaten the Persians themselves after all, with the aim of using it on the Antigonid side. Cassander had essentially lost Greece at this point, rendering him unable to bring support to Ptolemy. Accordingly, Ptolemy's possessions were going to be next. In 306, then, Demetrius landed in Cyprus, with the aim of retaking it. Cyprus was one of Egypt's most vital areas, meaning that it would severely damage Demetrius' enemy if he were to be successful in retaking it. However, the island wasn't simply going to lie down and surrender immediately. Menelaus, Ptolemy's brother, had been tasked with defending Cyprus. Demetrius eventually forced him to flee the, to the town of Salamis in defeat. Demetrius pinned him down here and began a siege, but Menelaus managed to send word to Ptolemy to ask for reinforcement. His eventual arrival meant that Demetrius was outnumbered approximately two to one by the combined forces of both brothers. A battle was therefore going to be imminent. Accordingly, there was a naval battle off the coast of Salamis, where Demetrius won a stunning victory, by managing to destroy Ptolemy's ships before they could link up with those of Menelaus. This victory was so complete that Ptolemy wasn't even able to gather his men together before fleeing, and in the face of this, Menelaus surrendered. It was the news of this victory, which made the Antigonids the most powerful men in the Hellenistic world, that prompted Antigonus to set up an elaborate ritual in which he was offered the crown. Like so many people throughout history, he initially pretended to refuse, before being prompted by the citizens of Antigonia, his new capital that he himself had founded, to accept it. Even this city would have been a sign of his ambition. Like Alexander, he had founded his own city and named it after himself, which he did at around the time he accepted the crown. Added to this, his son Demetrius was also sent a crown by his father. It looked like the empire was about to reunite under a new dynasty, and it was this that prompted the other successors to take crowns of their own, as we discussed last time. In the summer months of 306, then, the Antigonids seemed to be on top of the world. They had crushed Ptolemy in battle, at the cost of his entire navy, which left Egypt helpless. 
Cassander, while still retaining Macedon, had been ejected from Greece proper in favour of the Antigonids. They must therefore have been pretty confident about their chances of supremacy. However, it is at this point, as with so many good stories, that the problems begin. Fully realising its vulnerability, Antigonus marched on Egypt, determined to crush Ptolemy into the dirt. The plan was that his navy, headed up by Demetrius, would carry the supplies and launch the first attack, followed by his father. Antigonus's army was essentially going to use overwhelming force to ensure that Ptolemy lay down and never got up again from a political perspective. However, the weather now intervened. Storms prevented the navy from reaching Egypt, meaning that Antigonus's army had no way of sustaining itself. It was therefore forced to turn around, saving Ptolemy from certain destruction. This was bad from the Antigone point of view, but was not fatal. Ptolemy, although not destroyed, was drastically weakened as an opponent. Seleucus was, at this time, still preoccupied with matters in the east and not posing a threat. Cassander, busy trying to restore order in Greece, was thus primed as the next target. Their first objective at this point was Rhodes. The island dominated the entrance to the Aegean, so, if it fell, father and son would be able to strike wherever they wanted, whenever they wanted to. Its fall would also stop it from being able to help Ptolemy rebuild his shattered navy, which would firmly have been on the list of things Antigonus wanted to avoid. So, in 305, a siege of Rhodes began. Demetrius brought up massive siege engines, as he had done with Salamis, to try and batter Rhodes into submission. However, there was one thing that perhaps wasn't planned for, or at least not as well as it should have been. The other successors would also have been aware that Rhodes was vital. Cassander, Lysimachus and Ptolemy would have known that Rhodes was what stood between them and complete annihilation at the hands of Antigonus. Accordingly, they reinforced the island and turned it from a sideshow into the focus of the war. The siege duly dragged on for a year before a compromise was reached. The islanders promised loyalty to Antigonus against all his enemies, with the important exception of Ptolemy. This was used as an excuse for victory by both sides. Demetrius was awarded the title Polyorchites, taker of cities, while Ptolemy became Soter, or saviour. Although the Antigonids had now won Rhodes, it was not the complete victory that they would have liked. In 304, Demetrius set off back to Greece again, where Cassander was laying siege to the now pro-Antigonid Athens. Demetrius began winning over Greece town by town, with Corinth and virtually the entire Peloponnese coming over to him. Then, in 303, he organised a meeting where a new league of cities, autonomous but under Demetrius, was created. Demetrius was importantly given the right to recruit soldiers, no doubt a massive boost to the Antigonid cause. In the face of all of this, Cassandra tried to sue for peace in 302. However, Demetrius and Antigonus now smelled blood, and demanded that this surrender be unconditional. Given how merciless the two of them were likely to be, you can imagine that accepting could well have been political suicide. So, Cassander refused, breaking off negotiations, and the war continued. Demetrius invaded Thessaly and fought a sort of cold war with Cassander. The two armies made camp right next to each other, watching but never attacking. Cassander sent out messages to Ptolemy, Lysimachus, and Seleucus, 
begging for help. All three of them accepted, which means that Seleucus now finally enters the war again. By 302, he and his son Antiochus were marching over from their eastern provinces, with the aim of joining the war against Antigonus. This meant that Demetrius would now have to deal with this eastern threat, and as such, he would be unable to focus on Cassander, meaning that an armistice was signed between the two. Lysimachus then invaded Anatolia. This would have been a shock to the others, as Lysimachus was by far the weakest of the coalition. As such, his invasion was completely unexpected. However, his forces had been bolstered by Cassander's men, and he had a full treasury with which to work, so he invaded. Accordingly, the rich western Anatolian towns of Sardes and Ephesus fell to him, which was a blow to Antigonus. This attack would suffer immediate retribution. Antigonus moved west, while Demetrius landed in Anatolia from Greece, trapping Lysimachus between a hammer and an anvil. Cassander tried to send him reinforcements, but these were stopped by Demetrius' ships. Lysimachus, hoping for support from the others, managed to delay a battle, which would no doubt have ended his hopes of resisting the Antigonids. Ptolemy did, in fact, move north into Syria in the winter of 301 BCE. However, he heard reports that Antigonus had won against Lysimachus. Although this was untrue, Ptolemy didn't know this, which meant that he retreated in an attempt to defend himself. This left Lysimachus vulnerable to the Antigonids, who now sought to crush him and prepare to invade Europe. Lysimachus was isolated near Ephesus, essentially waiting for the death blow to come. That, however, is when Seleucus arrived. Ever since the summer of 302, he had been marching from the Punjab tirelessly, reaching Cappadocia by the winter. With him were 20,000 infantry, 12,000 cavalry, 100 chariots, and, crucially, 480 elephants that he'd received from Chandragupta. Antigonus had been forced to leave the central passes undefended when he turned to deal with Lysimachus. Aware of the danger Seleucus posed, he had then sent an army to Babylon in an attempt to stop him, but Seleucus had basically gone around it, focusing on the conflict he knew would come in Anatolia. So, seemingly out of nowhere, he appeared at Ipsus to join Lysimachus. That's where we're going to leave it for a bit. All the major players who will be there are now assembled at Ipsus, the Antigonids on the one hand, and Lysimachus, Seleucus, and Antiochus on the other. In part two, we'll finally let them loose and see the Battle of Ipsus unfold. That's part two, after the music. See you then. Antigonus had failed to prevent Seleucus from joining his other opponents. In the spring of 301, travelling along the main road, Seleucus and Antiochus duly arrived at Ipsus. History doesn't record Lysimachus' reaction, but I can imagine that the sigh of relief he gave out could probably be heard from mainland Greece itself. Immediately before the battle, Plutarch wrote that the Antigonids saw a string of bad omens. If nothing else, the arrival of Seleucus itself would have been seen along these lines by Antigonus. After all, whereas before Antigonus and Demetrius would have been able to crush Lysimachus, now they faced a real challenge. As I've stressed multiple times, 
it comes back to the lack of interest Antigonus had shown in the eastern provinces. While he focused on the west, he had allowed Seleucus to grow into an overwhelming eastern power, whose domain now extended over everything east of the Euphrates River. You've only got to consider that Seleucus was able to field elephants in Anatolia, something that none of the other powers would have been able to match. Granted, Antigonus had tried to stop him from reaching Ipsus at all, but the damage had arguably already been done by then. By neglecting the east and allowing an enemy to rise up within it, Antigonus had been outmaneuvered by himself. The battle itself is not recorded particularly well, so I've only got a few details to go on. What we do know is that Antiochus, by now 22 or 23, was present and an active participant in the battle, which I don't think we've seen before. Just like Edward the Black Prince at Cressy 1600 years later, perhaps this was the moment when Antiochus metaphorically earned his spurs. Demetrius commanded his father's cavalry during the battle and was initially highly successful when battle was joined. He managed to push his opponents, in the form of Antiochus's troops, into a rout. However, in the heat of the moment, he pursued them, which Harold Godwinson would be able to tell you is nearly always a bad idea. This exposed the left wing of Antigonus's forces and left them open to a charge by Seleucus's elephants. The elephants duly moved forward, isolating Antigonus from Demetrius. The combined forces of Seleucus and Lysimachus were now able to wheel around the intimidating, but cumbersome, phalanxes commanded by Antigonus, making as if to attack to try and provoke desertions. The ploy worked, as Antigonid soldiers deserted to them in droves, and it was now the Antigonid forces who remained who were pushed into a rout. As men with javelins bore down on the area where Antigonus himself stood, an aide tried to point out to him the imminent attack, presumably warning him to flee. But Antigonus held firm, assuring him that his son Demetrius would come to help them soon enough. He was killed, still believing this, by a volley of spears and arrows which came their way. The Battle of Ipsus was now a thundering success for the anti-Antigonid coalition. That's where I'm going to leave it for this week, with Antigonus only just having died. Next time, we'll discuss the aftermath of Ipsus, as the Antigonids' fortunes plummet just as rapidly as they rose. Does this mean the fighting is now over? Well, not exactly. But that will have to wait for next time. In the meantime, thank you for listening. Feel free to contact us at afteralexpod at gmail.com for any questions or comments, and a reminder that the poll is still open if you want to participate. Until next time, have a great week, everyone. Thank you.